0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And we're in 1 Corinthians 12. We will be looking at verse 7 today, and as I promised you last week, um, we're going to continue with those nine foundational truths regarding spiritual gifts, because they're pretty much going to lay down the parameters and in the in a very important foundation for understanding spiritual gifts in the historical context when Paul was talking about it, but also in a practical way for us today, as this is such an important topic in the church, spiritual gifts. Today, so many different views and backgrounds on that. We've already discussed that in previous weeks. So we're going to pick up. We're at actually verse 7. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. And those of you who haven't been with us, uh, we've done a couple of sermons on chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 6. And we noted that when Paul says now concerning in verse one, he's bringing up a new topic that he's going to discuss thoroughly. And he's going to be discussing this for chapter 12, 13, and 14. This a big section of scripture, it all goes together. It's all about spiritual gifts and it's a corrective. In other words, Paul got wind of the fact 200 miles away that the Corinthian congregation was really struggling in this area of understanding spiritual gifts. Their theology of it, mostly their practice of it. There was an abuse, it was out of kilter, it lacked balance. They were already prone to arrogance, because he said that clearly in 1 Corinthians 4, some of you are arrogant. He keeps bringing that theme up, puffed up. You think too highly of yourselves. This is creating division in the body of Christ. Some of you are looking down your nose at other Christians in many different areas and different ways, and. It was also true in the area of how they used their spiritual gifts. And Paul acknowledged in the first chapter that this Corinthian congregation was highly gifted by God when upon salvation in terms of the gifts that were given to many of their members. So they had the whole gamut of gifts. Um, no doubt some of them had the gift of prophecy, which was a, a, a gift of divine revelation, speaking in tongues, another gift of divine revelation, interpretation of tongues, Um, A lot of those verbal gifts that put you front and center in front of a lot of people actually put a lot of attention to yourself. And if you don't have humility, then you could be prone to being arrogant, flamboyant, and prideful about that gift and begin to think that, oh, my gift is more important than the gifts of other people or maybe even to the point thinking that other people aren't gifted at all because they don't have the Vocal, verbal, showy gift. And that's exactly from the context what the problem was with the Corinthians. Some of the Corinthians actually believed that they had a bigger dose of the Holy Spirit than some of the others in their congregation. We have greater access to the Holy Spirit. We have a greater manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We have we have more of the holy spirit at our disposal than you do or some as a matter of fact some of these corinthians probably thought that some in their some christians in their congregation didn't have the holy spirit at all that's why paul starts this section saying you know that's not true if you're a christian you have the holy spirit because no one can say jesus is lord and mean it sincerely without being led by the holy spirit so he he's trying to Set the record straight and unify everybody. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And that puts everything on a level playing field. He's trying to break down their arrogance and their humility, or their arrogance and pride as they look down their nose at other believers um, when, with respect to spiritual gifts. So that's how he started out. So we're picking up in verse 7. And he's just going to keep pounding away at this theme that uh, every believer is significant, every Christian is important. It's about the Holy Spirit, and it's not about you when it comes to spiritual giftedness. And that takes us to verse 7, so let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, The title today is Foundational Truths About Spiritual Gifts, Part 2. We're going to pick up on, and we're just going to do 3 through 9. And then we'll go on next week. We'll pick up at verse 8, where it actually starts listing spiritual gifts by name. And we'll be talking about those. Uh, So we're just looking at verse 7 to reiterate... He says in verse 7, but to, but to each one, but to each Christian, but to every single Christian. That's important. Whether you have a showy gift or not. Whether you're a significant Christian in the congregation or not. It doesn't matter. Every single Christian. So that's true of us today. If you're a believer, you know Jesus Christ today. This is true of you. Every believer has a spiritual gift, but to each one, every Christian is given a spiritual gift. And the way he words spiritual gift here, he uses this phrase, the manifestation of the Spirit. That's synonymous with spiritual gift. And he puts the emphasis, he's trying to take the emphasis off of them as individuals and put it where it belongs when it comes to spiritual gifts. And the emphasis should be on the Holy Spirit. They are his gifts. He's the one that distributes the gifts. They're for his purpose and glory. He's the one in charge. So, Corinthians, get your eyes off yourself when it comes to spiritual gifts as you're just looking at yourself all the time and how wonderful you are. And he puts it on the Holy Spirit where it needs to be. And if you are a believer, you have a spiritual gift. And that spiritual gift is for the purpose of, get this, the manifestation of the Spirit. What that means is the Holy Spirit is going to manifest himself, reveal himself, and make himself known through you, through the channel of the gift that he has given you. It's amazing. Maybe when you look at a fellow Christian... And what you see is despicable, fallenness, sinfulness, finiteness, brokenness, quirky personality traits. That's how humans look at the outside of people. Paul is saying a true believer, from God's perspective, actually, if they're truly born again, they have the Spirit of God living in them, and on a regular, continual, ongoing basis, they have the manifestation of the Spirit emanating from them or being manifest through them and primarily God does that through the use of their whole of their spiritual gift that God gave them and that's how you need to view another Christian wow that fellow believer manifests and puts on display the characteristics and the attributes of the Holy Spirit of God and the way they do that is in their service by use of their spiritual gifts towards others in the church or in the world So that's how the Holy Spirit works. He manifests Himself, puts Himself on display through us fallen individuals as we faithfully employ our giftedness. And that's true of every Christian. Every Christian reflects the Holy Spirit on a small scale. That's just unbelievable. Despite our sin, despite our brokenness, despite our lack of faith, despite our shortcomings, if you're a true Christian, that is true. So to every Christian... A spiritual gift is given so that the Holy Spirit might manifest himself for the purpose of what? For the common good. Spiritual gifts, we've already talked about this, spiritual gifts are given to you, to me, that we might serve others and bless others starting in the church, the corporate body of Christ. That is the main goal, that is the main purpose. Uh, So that's verse 7. In keeping with that, let's go ahead and pick up on uh, where we left off last week of these nine foundational truths which flow out of actually four main books where Paul addresses spiritual gifts, actually three of those by Paul and one by Peter, uh, to r- remind us um, last, uh, the first two from last week. Number one, spiritual gifts matter and should not be minimized. They matter because they're in the Bible. Paul spends three chapters here. They shouldn't be marginalized. They shouldn't say, oh, that's off limits because Christians are divisive and fight about it, therefore let's not talk about spiritual gifts. And And people tend to do that with just about every doctrine there is. I brought up one time how um, I have a, a very good friend who is going to a church where they don't do communion or baptism because it's divisive in the church. Well, Christians, they debate over whether it's sprinkling or dunking. and So we're not supposed to be divisive. Therefore, our church decided we're just not going to do baptisms. Really? Yeah, and our church also decided that um, you know, d- people debate over communion and the meaning of it and whether it's sub- uh, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or a memorial, and therefore we just don't take communion. Really? Yeah, because it's divisive and God doesn't want to be divisive. So we're, the way we're going to deal with it is just minimize what Scripture says, a command. Well, th- that is not the way to do it. And people do the same thing with just about every doctrine. be creation. Well, it doesn't matter what Genesis says about the how old the earth is and so therefore we're not going to talk about that and who cares and it's not a salvation issue anyway no all scripture is inspired by god and profitable if it's in the bible as christians it is a priority and we need to seek the mind of god together so that's true spiritual gifts as well number two every christian has a spiritual gift and then let's go on to number three uh three through nine and hold on to your seats and grab a bible we're going to thumb through a little bible study today as we go through and I promised you we're going to get to number nine. Some of you are doubting. O oh, ye of little faith! Let's see how we do. Uh, number three: Every Christian is responsible for their gift. Uh, I put two passages there, but I want to do. I do want to go to First Peter four because this is where Peter talks about spiritual gifts. He he doesn't say identical things that Paul does about spiritual gifts. There is some crossover, but Peter does say complimentary things to the apostle Paul. And they're, they're actually very important. Um, so look at first Peter four. After Hebrews, James, first Peter four, ten. Incredibly important verse. Um, be hospitable to one another. Which spiritual gift do you need to be hospitable to one another? you don't need a spiritual gift to do that. Hospitable, by the way, means to um, love believers. Love believers in all ways. Um, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You don't need a spiritual gift to refrain from complaining if you're a Christian. What you need is obedience, not a spiritual gift. And then he goes to verse 10, and he does accentuate the importance of spiritual gifts. That's verse 10. As each one, as each Christian has received a gift. So there it is. Every Christian has received at least one spiritual gift. Could be more than one. But it's a matter of fact. If you're a Christian, you've received a spiritual gift. And because you have a spiritual gift, you are now accountable for it. And that's why the verb in verse 10 is employ. Use your gift. If you're a Christian, you need to use your spiritual gift. If you don't use your gift and you're being disobedient, I'm being disobedient. We will be held accountable for our gift because it is not ours. It was given to us by God. We will be held accountable in the future of how we used our gift, whether we used it or not, and whether we abused it or not. This is all about accountability and stewardship. Verse 10, as each Christian has received a spiritual gift, employ it, use it, don't neglect it, don't hide it under a bushel, don't bury it in the ground. This is a a command. This is not an option. Use your spiritual gift. That's why... A Christian who tries to be a Lone Ranger Christian and is not connected with the body and they don't attend church regularly and they don't have a home fellowship and uh, they're out on the beach and worshiping God and by themselves or whatever, they can't really fulfill this basic command of Christianity. You're supposed to be using your spiritual gift in service to the body of Christ, first and foremost, for God's glory. If you're not in a local fellowship but regularly on a family, a church family, you can't fulfill this. And this is basic to Christian growth and accountability and maturity. So use your spiritual gift. That's why when you, if people join GBF, join our church, one of the basic things is, what is your gift? you know what it is? If you don't, we're going to help you discover it. And we are going to help you employ it here because this is basic to being a Christian. Absolutely necessary. Use your spiritual gift, notice, for the purpose of in serving one another. And here's the key word, as good stewards. A steward is somebody who has something that doesn't belong to them. It was a gift given to them And they are accountable for taking care of it, for nurturing it, for using it, for maximizing its potential, and then investing it. And at some point in the future, they have to give it back to the owner. And they have to give account. So the owner of the gift is Almighty God. So someday we all have to stand before Almighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and give account for how we use the gifts that he has given us. And be rewarded or lack of reward in accordance to how we used the gift or didn't use it. That, that's a sobering prospect. But that's what stewardship means. Accountability. It's not your own. This is not an option. It's about Christ and His church. So we need to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And, and every gift that we have, you know, the basic question people have is how many gifts do we get? I, I don't know. I do know that we get a minimum of one spiritual gift. That is clear. But this verse indicates... The manifold nature of that gift, it could be you, you've been gifted by God with the Holy Spirit and maybe it's like a fine diamond and it glitters from any different directions and so maybe it's a, a multitude of gifts or a gift that uh, has many abilities. I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul. He was gifted as an apostle. thats a spiritual gift. He was gifted as a teacher. That's a spiritual gift. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gift of leadership. The Apostle Paul had that. And... It, Paul's gifted as an evangelist. That's another one. So that's this manifold grace of God that Paul was given. That's probably true of every Christian. It's like this palette of many colors that you have, where God wants you to be His artiste for His glory. Manifold giftedness that God has given us, being faithful stewards. But the whole idea in stewardship is we're responsible for the gift God gave us. There, there aren't any excuses. Oh, I couldn't find a good church. Oh, I didn't want to serve there. Oh, I couldn't find my gift. Oh, my gift doesn't matter. Oh, on and on. Stewardship. So that's number three. Every Christian is responsible for the use of their gift. They are in control of it as well. Uh, Number four, every Christian receives the Spirit at salvation. Every Christian receives the Holy Spirit at salvation. This is important because the Holy Spirit is the one who gives gifts. And apparently the Corinthians, some of the Corinthians, thought that, some fellow Christians in their congregation didn't have the Holy Spirit and that's wrong. That wrong theology is prominent today in Christian circles around America and around the world where some Christians think they are the haves and lower lesser Christians are the have-nots meaning they think they have greater access to the Holy Spirit and they have a greater amount of the Holy Spirit than other Christians. I have the second blessing. I have the higher life i have whatever that's not true every christian has the holy spirit and they receive the holy spirit at salvation uh, go to john chapter 7 verse 37 uh, the reason this is important uh, in talking to christians you start asking basic questions and you realize many times we're kind of confused about our theology of the holy spirit for example a basic question i like to ask is did unbelievers? I mean, did believers in the Old Testament have the indwelling Holy Spirit? And probably about 50% of the time, uh, the two most popular answers I usually get, um, whether it's at seminary or just Sunday school class or talking to believers in the church, did the Holy? Did the believers in the Old Testament have the indwelling Holy Spirit? Usually, there's a long pause. Hmm, I don't know. That's a good question. Or many times, oh well, of course they did. Um, well, the second one, that's the wrong answer. They, believers in the Old Testament didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, and we're going to see that in Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-seven. But first, look at John 7, uh, 37 to 39, where Jesus is talking and he says this. Now, on the last day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out publicly teaching. He said, if anyone is thirsty or desires salvation, forgiveness of sin... Let him come to me and drink. You want to be saved? Come to me. So he's using the metaphor. The one who believes in me, as the Scriptures said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. When you believe in Jesus and get saved, something amazing and supernatural will happen. Uh, It will be like waters will be flooding continually like a fountain from your soul on the inside. Water speaks of cleanliness and life and fulfillment and satisfaction. And it happens on the inside, and it happens as a result of knowing Jesus Christ personally. That's what he's saying happens at the salvation experience. What in the world is he talking about? From his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Jesus, what are you talking about with that metaphor? Verse 39, John tells us, But Jesus, uh, this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Holy Spirit... Key, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So something new was going to happen with respect to the Holy Spirit and believers after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven. And we know from Paul and the rest of the New Testament that after Pentecost, when believers believed in the gospel at the time of salvation, something new would happen. That new thing is that the Spirit of God would be given to every believer to live in them, reside in them permanently until they die and go to heaven, or until Jesus comes back again. So this was not true of Old Testament believers. Old Testament believers did not have the continual, ongoing indwelling of the Holy Spirit, universally speaking. The Spirit of God was with the people of God. Sometimes he was with leaders in unique ways, like with King David or prophets and whatever, but not in the same way. This is called the New Covenant of the Old Testament. This is Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. So look at Ezekiel 36. 600 years before Christ came this prophecy was given it's very specific about the coming Holy Spirit and the new ministry of the Holy Spirit for believers that would be true after the Messiah rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven of how God would relate to his people Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven. this is about the same time that Jeremiah spoke specifically of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 Ezekiel is also explaining dynamics of the new covenant and by the way uh, so basically, God says to Ezekiel and Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And then when Jesus did communion, he said to his apostles, this is the new covenant in my blood. So it's clear. Jesus instituted the new covenant. It was fulfilled, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And here's the promise of the new covenant, at least one of the promises. Verse 27 of Ezekiel 36 says, um, he's talking to the nation of Israel, but... The Gentiles would be included. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart. Actually, go back to verse 25. At that time with the new covenant in the future, with the coming of the Messiah and his work, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That means forgiveness will come through the Messiah. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Verse 26, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. There it is. I'm going to put the spirit in you. A new spirit And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You're going to be soft and tender towards God. Verse 27 is the key. And I will put my spirit within you. There it is. It's future. This wasn't going on in the Old Testament. This was something new. That's why it's called the New Covenant. I'm going to put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. And so every believer has the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit upon salvation. That's, by the way, that's a beautiful verse in Ephesians 1, I think it's 13. It says that when you believe the gospel, you are saved in a moment of time. And at that moment, on your spiritual birthday or on your spiritual wedding, when you marry Christ for the first time, your wedding gift from God the Father is the Erebonah, the Holy Spirit of God that he puts in you to live in you and to seal you until the day of redemption in the future. Every Christian is sealed with the Holy Spirit who lives in them at the moment of salvation. Uh, and then Romans 8, verse 9 says the same thing. If you, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. This is basic. This is foundational. This is key. Because when it comes to spiritual gifts, a lot of the debate circles around the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who He is. And do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? How do you get the Holy Spirit? What do you have to do? What kind of spiritual gifts do you have to do to get the Holy Spirit? Well, no. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Every Christian does. It's just basic. So number four, every Christian receives the Spirit at salvation. Can you lose the Holy Spirit in this lifetime if you're a Christian? Answer, no. If you lost the Holy Spirit, it means you've lost your salvation. You can't lose your salvation. Jesus promised to give you eternal life when you believe. When you believe and you receive eternal life, it lasts eternally. If it's short-circuited after 10 years, it wasn't eternal life. It was 10 years' life, and that's a a pseudo-life. It's a false life. It's like Judas was never saved in the first place. But the Spirit comes to live in you. He is, Paul said, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, God gives you the Holy Spirit to be a seal until the day of redemption. He's talking until the resurrection. You can't lose the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. Well, I feel like I don't have the Holy Spirit today. Yeah, I feel like that a lot myself. Because we're humans. That's why you can't dictate and live life according to our emotions. We have to live our life according to truth, not our emotions and circumstances. Every Christian receives the Holy Spirit. Number five, spiritual gifts are given by the Trinity. Uh, by the Trinity. Go to Ephesians 4. I already pointed out in that sermon two weeks ago. Where it mentions God, that's the Father. It mentions the Holy Spirit, and then it mentions the Lord, that is Jesus, in those first uh, in two of those verses. God, the Father, gives the gifts. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts. The Lord Jesus gives the gifts. That's as clear as can be. Uh, and then Ephesians, let's go ahead and look at Ephesians four, where Paul actually talks about the growing of the church, the edification of the church, the foundation and beginning of the church, spiritual gifts given to the church, uh, and the role of Almighty Triune God. With respect to the church, and that's what he's talking about in Ephesians just to set the context Ephesians 4, and what he's doing with the spiritual gifted people in the church is everybody's contributing their spiritual gift to help the corporate body grow and mature and develop over time locally also universally also historically because god the father is preparing the church as his beautiful bride and fixing her dress and perfecting her makeup and everything else to present the bride jesus christ to the lord jesus christ someday in the future for that wedding between jesus and the church and that's what it's all about and so spiritual gifts are an absolutely essential part of that developing and maturing of jesus's precious bride The church. And so, in Ephesians 4, um, looking at, starting at verse 4, there's one body, church, one spirit, one Holy Spirit, one calling, verse 5, one Lord, that's Jesus, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God, the Father, who's over all things. Verse 7, but to each one, to every Christian, who's one with every other Christian, grace was given to us, that's a spiritual gift. Every Christian, uh, each one of us was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, there it is. Christ is the one who gives the gift in verse 7. Well, when did Jesus give the spiritual gifts to the church? Well, and then Paul goes on in verse 8. Therefore, it says out of the Old Testament, when he ascended on high, that's the Messiah, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to the church. So at the time of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is when Jesus gave gifts, spiritual gifts, to the church. That's when it happened historically. So God didn't give spiritual gifts like this in the Old Testament. This is something new. Spiritual gifts were given in a unique way, universally to every believer, by Christ, after his redemptive work in the New Testament, at Pentecost and after Pentecost. A unique era. Something new was happening. Verse 9, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into lower parts of the earth? Anyway, so that key there, verse 7 and 8, Jesus gave gifts to the church after he completed his work of atonement. This was not done in the Old Testament. It happened after Pentecost, initiated by Christ and his work. And then verse 11 specifically says, and he did it this way. He gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the work of service to the building up of the body. Uh, taking us back to verse 5, spiritual gifts are given by the Trinity. Jesus gave the gifts, the Spirit gave the gifts, and the Father gave the gifts. So if somebody asked you, who gave you? Your spiritual gift. Was it the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? I'd say amen. Yes. Uh, number six. Uh, God determines what gift you get. Or you could say the Holy Spirit determines what gift you get. Or you could say Jesus determines what gift you get. Boy, this is tremendously important. Go back to 1 Corinthians 12, since that's where we are, and put this principle in contrast to modern-day popular theology regarding spiritual gifts where it says uh, you need to ask for specific gifts. You need to plead with God and the Holy Spirit for certain gifts. God, I want prophecy. God, I want the word of knowledge. God, I want speaking in tongues. That's probably the most important one. I was taught that as a young Christian at the church I was going to. I was counseled that. Okay, you've been saved for two months. What's your name? Okay, Cliff, okay, here's what you need to do. And then they quote out of Luke. You ask Jesus, He'll give you whatever you want. So you need to ask him for the Holy Spirit. This is already, I've already been a Christian. I'm saved already, and they're telling me I need to ask God for the Holy Spirit. But I didn't know better at the time. I already had the Holy Spirit. So I'm asking God for the Holy Spirit. And you also need to ask for uh, the most powerful gift, and that's tongues, so that you can be spirit-filled. And so I did. Dear God, give me the gift of tongues. Then I later came to realize from studying Scripture, I have no business asking God to give me any gift. It's His discretion. He gives the gifts as He determines and he, as He wills. Very clear. So let's look at these verses where Paul accentuates that or highlights that. Uh, in chapter 12, first look at verse 11. As he's talking about spiritual gifts, it says, But one and the same Holy Spirit works all these things, these spiritual gifts, key, distributing to each one event individually as he wills. Giving the spiritual gifts to each and every Christian as the Holy Spirit wills or determines. It wasn't my choice. I didn't ask God, dear God, give me the gift of being a pastor, preaching and teaching someday. I actually never prayed that prayer. Early on, I didn't want to teach. I didn't want to stand up in front of people. God apparently said, too bad. Here's your gift. Be faithful to it. in it. in it. As he wills. I mean, you don't need a zillion verses. That one should be sufficient. As he wills. But Paul goes on, verse 18, same chapter. But now God has placed the members, the gifted members, each one of the gifted members in the body, get this, just as he desired. It's his will. So God not only determines the gifts, he determines what gifted people he's putting where he wants them. It's like the current staff we have here at our church. Why, why is he at this church? Well, because God put Him here. Why is she here? Because God sovereignly put them here to help this church grow. It's his beautiful, sovereign work. He keeps going with this idea that God's the one that gives the gift. Uh Verse 24 uh, Whereas our seemly members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which likes. So God has so composed the body. God is in charge of the body, growing the body, putting the gifts where he wills, putting gifted people where he wills. Verse 27, he goes on, or 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts. Notice God did it. God appointed, God apportioned. God determined what gifts, when, and where. God is in charge of giving spiritual gifts. So it is totally fallacious and illegitimate to tell a Christian, okay, you need to pray to God and ask him for the gift of tongues. Number seven, spiritual gifts are for edifying others. We saw that in 1 Peter 4.10 already. For the common good. God gives you a spiritual gift to exercise the spiritual gift. It is a gift of service, which Paul, that's the terminology he used in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. And so the gifts are given for serving others. Uh, Look at Ephesians 4, 12. We were just there, but we didn't go to verse 12. But it's, it's basic. It's a priority. Now, the reason this point is important is because today in the church and around the world, There is that theology that says, first of all, you need to ask God for a specific gift. Every Christian needs to be asking for that specific gift. You can't be a spirit-filled Christian without that specific gift, speaking in tongues. And if you have that gift, it's a sign that you are spirit-filled. And a manifestation, the way you use that spiritual gift is by using it as your private prayer language, all by yourself in a closet or when you lock yourself away, and you're edifying yourself as you use that gift. And that's contrary to everything that we've read about the purpose of the gifts thus far. Gifts are for serving others, not self. Um, Ephesians 4.12, since we were just there. The gifted people with their gifts that God gave to the church first was apostles. They laid the foundation with the prophets. Then along came evangelists like the Apostle Paul, church planters and people sharing the gospel. Then once the church got established, then there were pastors and teachers. By the way, this is chronological. It's chronological, these gifts, as they are given. Paul tells us that. He's going to use the words first, second, third, next in Corinthians saying the same thing. Chronologically given, it started with pastors. Then came the New Testament prophets. Then the evangelists came later. And then after that, the church is established. Then you need a pastor, and you also need teachers in the local church. These are the leaders of the church now. What do they do? Well, the main responsibility of elders and pastors and teachers in the church is to teach the saints, fellow believers, to equip the saints, to give them their tools so they can exercise their tools, so they can identify their spiritual gifts, so that they can use their gifts and use them in the local body, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Who does ministry in the local church? Well, the pastor. We pay him. Well, yeah, he does. But every other Christian needs to be doing ministry as well. We can't... uh, divide vocational from spiritual like many falsely do every christian should have what's your every christian should be able to answer the question what is your ministry oh my ministry is the nursery my ministry is sunday school my ministry is setting up my ministry is tearing down my ministry is music my ministry is teaching my ministry it doesn't matter what it is it's a ministry and they're all equally vitally important to the growth of god's church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's priority number one of what leaders in the church need to be doing, equipping the saints, equipping the saints, starting with truth, Scripture, the Bible. So uh, spiritual gifts are for edifying others. I use my gift to edify and build up others. And then in turn, other saints, they use their gifts to build up others. And the work of service, that's what service means, until all, uh, till we all attain the unity of the faith. So it's all in service and deference to others. Number seven, spiritual gifts are for edifying others. Let's go on to number eight. Spiritual gifts are for the church age. The church age. What do you mean by the church age? I mean, well, that'd be another interesting question. Don't answer out loud. Don't expose yourself. When did the church begin? That, that launches us, catapults us into dangerous, divisive waters in the church. When did the church begin? And you will get answers today. Anywhere from, well, it started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Or it started after Genesis 3. These are all formal positions proposed today. Uh, no, actually, it started with um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. No, it actually started with uh, Abraham in chapter 15. No, it started with, and then on, all throughout the Old Testament. Or it started with David and the promise of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And on and on it goes. And then we would say, no, actually, the church started on the day of Pentecost. It started on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus died and rose again from the dead. That's when the church started. So actually, a dominant view in Christianity, evangelical Christianity, is the church started with Adam and Eve or Abraham, and it's existed all throughout the Old Testament. That's the kind of dominant view. If, you're, uh, if you say that the church didn't start until the New Testament, until the day of Pentecost, you are what's called a dispensationalist. Some people think that's a term of derision. I take that as a compliment, actually. Dispensation just means a different era, era of time where God was doing something new and different that we're accountable for with new information and in the uh, progress of revelation. So the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. It began on the day of Pentecost. I know that because Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. It was a prophecy. I will build my church. And then the apostles came along in the book of Acts and in Ephesians and it says that the, the apostles laid the foundation of the church. And the word church doesn't exist. In the Old Testament. So it, it's pretty simple. Um, so this is the era of the church age. I guess which would make me a dispensationalist, they like to say. Spiritual gifts are for the church age, for this era. In other words, these the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God giving every individual believer his own personal presence and a spiritual gift that would be with them until they die so that they might literally minister and build up the corporate believing body of God's people didn't happen in the Old Testament. Didn't happen. But it happens in the New Testament with the work of Christ. And because, and I alluded to this earlier, in the Old Testament you had everything was very highly proscripted and Mosaic law and written out and you had a priesthood and only males were priesthood. Ladies, do you know that if you know Jesus Christ, you are a priest? Yippee! That's an awesome privilege. There were no female priests in the Old Testament. Every believer is a priest. Uh, that's a New Testament truth. If you believe as a woman that you're, and you're a Christian, if you believe that you are a priest before Almighty God, and if you believe that priests were not females in the Old Testament, you are a dispensationalist and maybe you didn't even know it. Because what it means is that there's a new truth that has taken place in this day and age because of the work of Christ. So spiritual gifts are for the church age. Um, and they were given by Christ, initiated by him after his ascension. That's what Ephesians 4 is all about. And so spiritual gifts weren't being given in the Old Testament. So when you take... Why is this important, McManus? Well, here's why. At least you can take a spiritual uh, gifts inventory test. Have you ever done that? You answer 100 questions, and then you figure out what your spiritual gift is. Uh, I've done that many times. I've actually given those tests, various ones. There's different ones. There's good ones, bad ones, ugly ones, helpful ones, practical ones, biblical ones, not-so-biblical ones. Uh, So you've got to be careful when you do that, but I think they can be very helpful. Uh, But some of these actually will put gifts on there that are uh, out of the Old Testament and they're not regular gifts given to God's people in the New Testament. Now, there were gifted people in the Old Testament, but I'm talking about a very specific kind of spiritual gift that God gives. It's only in the New Testament. So if you're taking a spiritual gifts inventory survey to help you discover your gift, make sure it comes from the relevant biblical passages in the New Testament that actually speak of spiritual gifts because they are delineated. The the gifts are listed by uh, Paul and Peter very clearly all throughout uh, the New Testament. So spiritual gifts are given for the church age. And because one of the main purposes of the gifts is to build up the body of Christ, the church. God had a different way of monitoring, managing, and building up the nation of Israel as a covenant people. And he's going to resume his relationship with them at some point in the future. So spiritual gifts are for the church age. Uh, let's go on to number nine. Spiritual gifts are for edifying, unifying the body of Christ. This is huge. Isn't it ironic that for the last 40 years, the church of Jesus Christ has been fighting, arguing, and squawking about spiritual gifts universally all over the place? And yet the point of spiritual gifts, it's supposed to unify us. So... We, we need to be careful. We can't. Ref- we, we need to refrain from arguing, fighting, and being divisive about spiritual gifts. We need to talk about it. Talk about it with clarity. Talk about it, driven by Scripture. Talk about it with humility, wanting to learn together, with the goal of trying to preserve unity in the church, but not backing down from it. Saying, "Oh, it doesn't matter because it's so divisive." So let's not talk about spiritual gifts. That's cowardice. That's being a wimp, and that's neglecting Scripture, the voice of God. It's also undermining true, healthy spiritual growth in a local church. All the spiritual gifts that God has meant for us today need to be employed in the local church so that the church might grow. So if you've got some nasty division going on among Christians or uh, in a local congregation and it's hovering around spiritual gifts or whatever, then you got to know that the Holy Spirit is being grieved. And that begins your diagnosis. Man, there is something wrong there. That's what Paul is picking up here. These Corinthians are fighting, arguing, squawking, they're a horrible testimony, yet they boast about their wonderful spiritual gifts. Hmm, something is out of kilter. And it was, and so that's why Paul's correcting them. And trying to give them a balanced biblical view of spiritual gifts. So, my prayer for GBF is that we're going to use our spiritual gifts, and God is going to use that to unify us, to preserve our identity as one body of Jesus Christ. It's all about Him, it's all for His glory so there we go one through nine so this is going to be foundational for the rest i think of this study that's going to be helpful for us in 1 corinthians 12 through 14 with that um i wanted to address like i said i've been getting some good questions on this and i don't want these questions to go too long i want to kind of answer them while they're fresh i think every every sermon i've preached uh which would be three sermons now in on first corinthians 12 and the spiritual gifts i have received very specific questions uh which is appropriate and last week I was saying they're, they require, they're complex, they're not easy. So just let me tell you some of the ones I've received, and hopefully that's helpful to you. Uh, one question was, how do we know, oh, do we receive just one gift, or how do we know we just received one gift? I would say, and I addressed it earlier, uh, we don't receive just one gift. But every Christian re- receives at least one, maybe more. Or maybe one gift that has many, or the manifold grace of God. It has many components to it. So you might be gifted spiritually in many different ways regarding your gift. So we are not limited to one gift. Hope that answers the question. Another question, um, and I've heard this one before. How do we know, why do we limit the available spiritual gifts to choose from to those that are specifically listed in the New Testament? So if you wrote down all the spiritual gifts that are listed in First Corinthians 12 through 14, because Paul's about to do that in verse 8. There's the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, faith, prophecy, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and he's got uh, apostles, prophets. List those. Then you go to Romans 12 and you list those. There's leadership is listed there. Um, helps or serving is listed there. Uh, then you go to Ephesians 4. Evangelists is listed there. So if you made a list of specific gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament, you come up with probably about 20. So the question is, how do we know, aren't maybe there's more gifts than 20. How do we know it's limited to what's mentioned in the New Testament? That's actually a good question. How do we know there's only 19 gifts? Uh, and I would say, well, you tell me a spiritual gift that exists that you know of and are aware of that's not listed in the Bible. Uh, no one's been able to do that. For me yet? <laughs> uh the gift of I don't know. If you can make something up, but if you make up the name of a gift and it's not in the Bible, then it's like, where'd you get that? Give me an example of somebody in the New Testament church and acts using that gift to build up the body of Christ. Or why did you say that was a gift? So I that's just kind of how I think of it is if it's not in the Bible, then whoa. Um another question I got was are Oh, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Um, that's a good question. I, the simple answer is, I can't think of a verse in the Bible that says, a Christian in the New Testament, that says a Christian can be possessed. Uh, I do know that every Christian has the Holy Spirit living in them. I do know that the New Testament says that the Holy Spirit owns you and me. If we're Christians, that's 1 Corinthians 6, among other places. He bought you with a price. He owns you. The Spirit of God lives in you. He owns you. You are his property. Uh, from First John, it kind of gives the implication that the devil's on the outside, not on the inside of a Christian because he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, right? Um, so you are possessed by the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian. And I think he's bigger and tougher than a demon, don't you? Almighty God. Uh, can you... can? It, the related question is can a christian be tormented by demons absolutely that's clear in scripture uh and satan right uh demons can torment believers satan can torment believers he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour uh he hounded job that's an old testament believer he hounded paul in second corinthians uh demons hound us ananias and Sapphira in acts chapter five for all intents and purposes uh they could have been believers. It doesn't say if they were truly born again or not. They had a profession of faith, but Satan was involved in their dirty deed of lying that led to their death. But I don't. it doesn't say that they were possessed by Satan. I think they were deceived by Satan and tormented by Satan and led away to disobedience by Satan. Maybe they weren't Christians at all. I tend to think they were believers. Um, but Christians can do just about every conceivable, despicable sin there is. in in weak moments and when they're under temptation. Uh, So my short answer would be I don't think Christians can be possessed by demons or the Holy Spirit. We can be tormented and hounded and harassed by demons and Satan and we don't need to have exorcism. Scripture is pretty clear. is uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You resist him with truth. You resist him with the Bible. You resist him with uh, your personal knowledge of Jesus Christ according to 1 John 4, not with the crucifix and a bunch of candles and incantations of prayers for 15 hours on end that that isn't what the bible says um and another one let's see those were the main ones i received and we got a couple of minutes if anybody had a spontaneous question maybe in light of what we said today we got a couple of minutes uh anybody got any questions on q a time on anything relevant to it doesn't have to be just the sermon it could be just this whole topic of spiritual gifts uh tongues anything anybody got a question and we'll address it because several of you said we need to have q a time so here we go so you you should be the one asking the first question. Oh, there's a hand. Go ahead. Is that Victor? Okay, thank you. I want to make sure. Yes, great question. If the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers in the Old Testament the way he does in the New Testament, what was the relationship of the Holy Spirit with believers in the Old Testament? Is that fair? Representing your question, Victor? Yeah, what was the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Um, There's that phrase where it says he was with his people, with, with, in the Hebrew, preposition b with his people, not in his people, with his people. Jesus even said that in the Gospel of John. He's been with you, but he shall be in you. Very specific distinction. So God's Spirit was always with his people because the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God, right? As a matter of fact, anytime it invokes the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament, that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can't separate the Spirit of God from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father in the Old Testament. They're always together. They just do different works. Sometimes they do different works at different times. So where's the first time the Holy Spirit occurs in the Old Testament? I believe in Genesis 1, verse 1. God, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That was God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 2 gives special attention to the Holy Spirit. At the time of creation, the Holy Spirit was brooding like uh, a bird over its eggs at the time of creation. So already in verse 2 of the Bible, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is showcased for all time. Uh, in terms of being... Absolutely a part of God's people and his ministry. Um, So he was always with his people. He was always with individuals in a special, unique way as God. And then there were times where the Holy Spirit had a unique ministry among others in terms of anointing. And we know this, the first king of Israel, Saul, got anointed, and the Holy Spirit came upon him to help him lead as king of the covenant people of Israel. And then when Saul was rejected by God, it said the Holy Spirit left him. The Holy Spirit departed from Saul. That doesn't mean Saul lost his salvation. It means that the, the special unction of the Holy Spirit that God gave to Saul to lead his covenant people was then transferred from Saul to the new king, which was David. And the Holy Spirit came upon David to lead as king. And so that's why in Psalm, uh, the psalm where David prayed after committing adultery with Bathsheba, and he was convicted. He said, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He wasn't saying, uh, God, I don't want to lose my salvation. It had nothing to do with salvation. David knew that, wow, punishing and the consequence for Saul for disobedience was God took the Spirit away from Saul for his right to be king. And David knew, man, I committed murder. I committed adultery. I'm guilty. I probably deserve to, to lose the Holy Spirit the same way Saul did, and God will have somebody else be king. And so he's praying, God, forgive me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So that was a special, unique ministry of the Holy Spirit with kings. uh, Sometimes the Spirit of God would come on prophets, um, special leaders. Uh, I don't know. Victor, does that make sense or satisfy your question? So there was definitely a unique ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then it was unique in a new way in the New Testament with the New Covenant ministry. Good question, though. Uh, maybe one more. Anybody else? Other question? Oh, right there. Name. John, good to meet you. Yeah. Uh, that is a very difficult and hard question, and I am that's not fair. I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. When are they bestowed? Um, From reading all those scriptures, I would say at the moment of salvation. But say I got saved when I was 11, and I truly became a Christian at age 11. And I received my spiritual gift of being a pastor at age 11. Well, at age 11, I'm not qualified to be a pastor. I'm not even qualified to work this out. So that gift, if it is there, and if I did receive it at the time of salvation... It's latent and can't that gift, it's kind of like the gift under the tree that you can't open because there's 30 days till Christmas. It's like, okay, maybe in 21 years I can open this gift of being a pastor because pastor is a gift. Ephesians 4:12 says it's a gift. It's a spiritual gift. But I couldn't open that until I was qualified and mature enough to be a, a pastor. So. I don't know when I don't know if I got the gift of pastor sometime after salvation or at the very moment of salvation actually when I was 19 I tend to believe it's given to me at the moment of salvation because what ha- we do know at the moment of salvation the spirit of God begins to live in me and he is the source of my spiritual gifts um but it might be manifest later if that makes any sense um another great question so that's that's a good reminder for all of us that Maybe you're at a point in your life, maybe you're just discovering your gift and you need time to develop it and actually find out what it is. And so that requires time. And so don't give up and get feedback from others. One last question. Take us home to lunch. Gene, go ahead. She that sewed like clothes. Oh, I stand corrected. The gift of sewing. The gift of web managers. The gift of web managers. I stand corrected again. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to stop you there, Gene, because it's time for lunch, but. Uh, I would just say to what Gene said he proposed, uh, there's the gift of sewing, as in clothes. I would say, well, I'd put that under the category of the gift of helps and service, which is actually mentioned in every passage regarding spiritual gifts, the gift of service, the gift of service. As a matter of fact, First Peter 4.10, he only gives two categories of gifts. There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And there's about a zillion and one serving gifts, aren't there? and actually new ones revealed with time, so uh, including sewing and working with the web. With that, let's go ahead and pray and give God the glory. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.